Let's just uh, unite our hearts in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we each come here this morning with different things in our hearts and on our minds, and uh, we want our hearts to be at rest in you. We want you to allow us to be able to focus on what you have to say to us this morning, not only through the songs that we've sung, but through the word that you've spoken and allowed to be written for us. And so we just ask that you would clear our minds so that we could hear what you have to say by your word and by your spirit. Father, I just want to confess my need to rest in you right now. I pray that I might know the fullness of your spirit and your grace and strength and power as I endeavor to share what you've laid on my heart. Father, we ask you that you'd be glorified this morning through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. On June 5th, 1982, I made two decisions which would radically affect the rest of my life. The decisions were not actually made on that day, though they were made prior to that day. It was that day that they were sealed when I walked the aisle with my bride-to-be. Now, while I could tell you all of the wonderful uh, benefits of that decision to uh, be united with my wife in marriage, it's actually the other decision that I'd like to talk to you about this morning. It actually began about five months prior to our wedding when I received a phone call one day from my wife who was living in San Diego and I up here in Canada. And she said, "I, I heard a sermon on stewardship by my pastor, David Jeremiah, and she said, I think we need to talk about it. Well, the result of that message and our discussion that followed was a decision to make our wedding anniversary not only a celebration of our union as a couple, but to make that our wedding anniversary also a time when every year we would evaluate God's goodness to us and, uh, and, and, and evaluate what we had been able to do in terms of stewardship and ask God to help us rise a little higher, uh, to raise our sights a little higher in the coming year. It was for us what I might call a journey, the beginning of a journey in outrageous giving. For 26 years, every year on our anniversary, we have been doing that little evaluation. And I can honestly say it has been one of the most exciting journeys of our lives. Now, I've chosen the word outrageous intentionally to try to communicate two very different facets of giving. The word uh, could be defined like this, that which is shocking, unthinkable, uh, offensive, or outside the bounds. Now, I would suggest that a biblical giving is all of the above. The idea of giving a significant amount of one's resources back to God has shocked and offended people right from the very start of creation right up to the present day. For instance... Did you realize that the first homicide in human history was a giving-related homicide? Do you remember Cain? God was not pleased with what Cain had offered, and he was pleased with what Abel had offered, and it made Cain so mad that he killed his brother Abel. Not only did did human history open with a giving-related homicide, the Old Testament closed with another battle about giving. The book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, is a book where God calls His people Israel to task for robbing Him in the giving of their tithes, that 10% that God had asked of them to be a part of their worship. 
people were basically saying, why should we give him the first and the best? This is so loathsome. This is so tiring. This is so offensive. So people were shocked with the idea of giving at the beginning. They were shocked with the idea at the beginning of the end, of, at the end of the New Testament. Not only was the beginning of creation marred by a giving-related death, but the beginning of the church was also marred by a giving-related death. Do you realize the first person to die in the New Testament church was a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, who died before the Lord because they lied to God about what they were giving. So you see, giving has always been somewhat of an offensive, shocking, unthinkable thing to many people. We could also talk about the reactions to Jesus' teaching on giving in the New Testament. Jesus actually had more to say about money and possessions than he had to say about any other topic, even more than heaven and hell put together. And much of what he said really offended and shocked people. People quit following him because of what he said about giving. People were angry at him. People ridiculed him. In the Gospel of Luke, a Gospel where one in six verses talks about money and possessions, right in the middle of the Gospel, right in the middle of one of Jesus' key teachings on money and possessions, we read this verse. Luke 16:14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. A lot of what Jesus had to say really upset people. So outrageous? Yeah, it sure has been. It always has been, it always will be. But I'd like to suggest this morning that giving is outrageous in a very wonderfully positive sense as well. Biblical giving, I believe when it is properly understood and embraced, is a shockingly, unthinkably, wonderfully outside-the-bounds experience that you will never regret. When we come to understand what God says about giving and we embrace it by faith, it is a shockingly, unthinkably, wonderfully outside-the-bounds experience that we will never regret. It's actually a strange thing to me that um, people could be so outraged and shocked by what God's Word has to say about giving. Because God's Word has some incredibly wonderful things to say about it. For example, Jesus said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. You all know that. You could go and ask a guy on the street. Do you know, have you ever heard of it is more blessed to? He could probably finish the phrase. It's so well known. Do you believe it though? I mean, that's incredible. If that's true... That represents one of the most amazing joys we could experience. If you're anything like me, you enjoy being on the receiving end of things. Uh, I love April, the month of April, one of my favorite months of the year. Do you know why? Because I love the tax refund that the government gives me every year. I really love it when I receive stuff like that. Uh, I not only am limited to liking receiving tax refunds, I like receiving lots of things. I love receiving back rubs from my children. I love receiving wonderful home-cooked meals from my wife. I like receiving things like, you know, front row seats to a hockey game. Uh, I like receiving in anything in the area of competition, anything that remotely involves competition. I love coming in first place. Don't kid yourself. Receiving is a wonderful thing. Why else would we find people lining up 
by the thousands at like 4 a.m. in the morning on December 26th. It's not because they want to give a little more. It's because we love getting, we love receiving. But Jesus says, if you think receiving is great, wait till you get the hang of giving. It's even more blessed. So, if that's true, why isn't everybody lining up to give a little more? I mean, if that's really true, why aren't we just emptying our pockets and giving every last dime we could possibly give? Well, I'd like, I'd like to look at it this way. I think biblical giving, like any other spiritual discipline, uh, is a discipline. You know, just like praying or or fasting, or Bible study, any of the other disciplines that we've been talking about in this series, so is giving. Giving is a discipline, and a discipline requires <laughs> discipline. Yeah, discipline. Uh, for instance, bodybuilding takes discipline. You don't get to look like me. What are you laughing for? You don't get to look like me simply by photoshopping your head. In it. <laughs> I guess that is how I got to look like me, isn't it? Uh, that's how we, most of us would like to get to look like that. By the way, for those of you who are wondering, that is not a picture of Stevens. Um, <laughs> by the way, you know, when I saw that ad uh, on, this morning about finding someone to replace Brenda to work with Stevens, I thought, Lord, that's going to take a miracle. <laughs> See, that's why he said we're good friends. You know, we'd like, <laughs> we were. <laughs> We'd like to be able to, to lift 500 pounds just at, at the drop of a hat. You know, we'd like to have muscles like that without really going through the discipline that it takes to get them. It's the same in giving. The reason we don't just all empty our pockets right away and give everything we have is because it takes discipline. You've got to build up to it. Um, well, what happened there? <laughs> Yeah, the way you get from this to that is by doing that. Not in your imagination, but in real life. Well, with promises like we read in the Word of God about money and giving, um, you know, I'd like to be bench-pressing 50 or 60% of my income, you know, giving that uh, to the Lord, but I'm not there yet. But I'm working in that direction, and I hope maybe someday I will be there, because I believe what God says about giving. My goal today is to take you from wherever you are in the spiritual discipline of giving and encourage you and urge you by faith to move to the next level because I believe that the discipline of, of giving is one of the most wonderful spiritual disciplines you could ever engage in. So how do you get there? How do I catch the wind of the Spirit in the spiritual discipline of giving? I'd like to share three very simple truths with you this morning that I believe can help us catch that wind of the Spirit in giving. I'd like you, first of all, to turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Luke chapter 19. And if you don't, just listen along. As I read a story that is very familiar to all of us, it's a story of a little short man. You know who that is? Oh, of course, Zacchaeus. You didn't know it was in Luke 19, but you know his story. And that's what we're going to start out with. Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to read about the first ten verses. Luke 19, beginning at verse 1. 
Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, that is the crowds, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Anyone who's ever attended Sunday school has heard the story of Zacchaeus many times. It's one of those stories that, along with stories of David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den, always seems to make it into the Sunday school curriculum. But what's a little bit amazing about his story is that he seems to be known for the smallness of his stature rather than for what is really incredible about him, and that is the greatness of his faith. The first thing I would like to suggest that we need to understand about outrageous giving is that it is an act of faith. Giving is an act of faith. The story uh, that we just read is recorded only in Luke's Gospel. None of the other Gospel writers write about it. And it's really a fascinating story in several respects. Uh, For one, I believe it's fascinating in the description of the man. The first uh, couple of verses tell us three very interesting things about him. First of all, he was a tax collector. Now, as a tax collector, he was a marked man in Jewish society for two reasons. One, because he was seen as a traitor in collaborating with the powers of Rome. And two, because tax collectors were often corrupt and would take more taxes from the people than they were required to take and would stick the excess in their pocket. Secondly, we're told that he was a chief tax collector. It's reasonable to assume, therefore, that he was probably more corrupt than the average tax collector because in the world of corruption, I would suggest it's usually the scum that rises to the top. I think it's probably reasonable to assume that he was one of the most despised men in town. Well, Luke also tells us that he was a rich chief tax collector. It says he was very wealthy. This is actually the second rich man that we encounter in the book of Luke in his many chapters. You may not remember, but in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, we hear the story of another rich man. He was called the rich young ruler. And you remember his story. He came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to have eternal life? Well, he was a rich young ruler. This was a rich little uh, thief. And I believe that Luke told these two stories side by side so that the readers would kind of do a little comparison in their head. If you look at the two, one was a ruler of the Jews, the other was a traitor to the Jews. The one was very respected, the other was very despised. The one was, uh, followed the law of God, the, others, the other collaborated with the laws of Rome. The one was the cream of the crop, the other was the scum of the earth. So he was a rich man, and then the last thing we're told about him is that he was a rich little chief tax collector. We're told that he was very small in stature. He was a pipsqueak. And so maybe Luke was trying to say in every way possible, people looked down on this man. But not Jesus. Jesus didn't look down on him at all. 
The story is not only fascinating in the description of the man, but it's fascinating in the description of his encounter with Jesus. First of all, we read that Jesus knew him by name. We don't know how he knew him by name. Maybe he was so notorious everybody knew him. Maybe he knew him simply because Jesus was God in the flesh. But he knew him by name, and he wasn't ashamed to be associated with him. You know how you are if you're in a crowd of your associates and there's somebody you know nobody likes. <laughs> you don't necessarily like to you know, be identified, but Jesus wasn't ashamed. said, Zacchaeus, I want to eat at your place today. And it says that Zacchaeus gladly received him. I think this is in contrast to what we see in chapter 18 where the rich man, it says, sadly retreated from him. When he found out what Jesus had to say, it says he sadly departed. And I think probably also in contrast to the crowds who madly reacted to him when they saw that Jesus was going to this man's house. Finally, before I move on, I think it... it, it, would be good just to pause and say, isn't Jesus Christ incredible? That he knows us like that? Jesus Christ knows every one of you by name. And he is not ashamed to be associated with you, no matter what you have done, no matter what anybody else thinks about you. What a glorious Savior we have. Well, I think it's also unique in its description of the outcome. Though the details are very scant, Zacchaeus' response to Jesus uh, uh, focuses on money, and Jesus' words to Zacchaeus focus on faith. He says, today salvation has come to this man because he also is a son of Abraham. What did he mean by that? He's a son of Abraham. Was he just talking about his ethnicity, saying he's a Jew just like the rest of you? I don't think so. I think that Jesus was saying something probably similar to what the Apostle Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 3.7, where he said, he said this, Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And so Jesus was simply saying, Salvation has come to this man's house because he has expressed his faith in me. But now what would lead Jesus to say that? What would cause him to draw that conclusion that this man had uh, demonstrated faith? Well, the only thing that Luke happens to mention uh, about the encounter is what Zacchaeus did with his money. It had to do with Zacchaeus' money. And Zacchaeus made a very astonishing declaration. He said, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Now, to understand the implications of what he said, um, let's just suppose for the sake of argument that Zacchaeus had a net worth of a million dollars in today's currency. That wouldn't be outreasonable. If he's described as a rich man, he probably does have that net worth. So let's just suppose he has a million dollars net worth. What happened to that money when he came to faith in Jesus? Well, first of all, he says, Lord, I'm going to go and I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. So there goes 500 grand right there. <laughs> That's an act of faith, isn't it? Half of his possessions, he said, he'd give to the poor. But Zacchaeus wasn't finished. Then he went on and he said if he defrauded anyone of anything, he'd pay back not one to one, but four to one, which was in keeping with the Old Testament laws of restitution. Now, we don't know how much of his uh, income might have come from fraud, but it would not be at all unreasonable to uh, assume that maybe 10% of what he owned was fraudulent. So let's just suppose that is true. 
That would mean that $100,000 of his net worth was from fraudulent activity. And what was he saying? Lord, I'll pay back $400,000 to the people that I've defrauded. So potentially, Zacchaeus didn't give a tithe. He kept a tithe and he gave 90% of his money away. You talk about an act of faith. That is an act of faith. But giving is an act of faith. Outrageous biblical giving begins as an act of faith. I mentioned the story of Cain and Abel uh, earlier. What does the writer of Hebrews say about Abel's giving? Do you remember in Hebrews 11? It says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said about Zacchaeus. Your faith, salvation has come to your house because this man's a son of Abraham. Giving to God the first and the best of what you have when you could legitimately use it to your own benefit requires an act of faith. There's no other way about it. I've always been of the conviction that the starting point of biblical giving is the tithe, 10%. Now, some of us may differ with that and say, well, that's Old Testament. We're under grace today. We're free to give whatever we want. Well, that's fine. Uh, we won't go, go there right now. I'll address that in a few minutes. But uh, I was raised uh, in my family to believe that you always give at least 10% of your income to God. And so we taught our children the same thing. And as far as we know, we don't check on them. But as far as we know, our kids have done the same. They've given 10%, whether it's their monthly allowance or their newspaper route or their cutting of lawns or whatever. They've given 10% of their income to God. Now, that's not too hard of a discipline to learn when you start out with a $5 allowance and you're a little kid. But where it becomes a little bit more challenging is as your income starts to grow. I will um, never forget the, the day that our oldest son was deeply impacted in the matter of giving as an act of faith. Uh, he was on his summer vacation in between his first and second year of university, and he had landed his first a very good-paying summer job. He worked nights at a, a truck depot loading trucks with food all night long, so every dollar that kid earned was a well-earned dollar. I remember he came home with his first paycheck, $1,100. And he was really upset to learn that the government had taken 20% of his hard-earned money. It had been reduced from 1100 to 880 Well, my words of welcome to the working world were of small comfort to his tortured soul. But he knew he wasn't finished. He still wanted to give at least a tenth of it to God. And Yet he was now faced with the age-old question of, do I tithe on the net <laughs> or the gross? And uh, he was convinced that since God gave him the gross, he should give back to God based on the gross, and so he wrote out a check for $110. Now his little uh, paycheck had gone from $1,100 to $770. Now, admittedly, it's hard for a kid who's facing huge tuition bills in university to see his paycheck evaporating like drops of water on a hot grill. Nonetheless, he went ahead and did it. Well, the following Sunday, a week later, as we were leaving church, uh, we went to our mail slot and pulled out an assortment of prayer letters and announcements, and there happened to also be an envelope with Joel's name and address on it. We went home and Shortly after we got home, I happened to 
pass in front of his room, and I noticed he was sitting on his bed with a rather contemplative look on his face. So I went in and said, hey, Joel, what's up? Almost immediately, tears came to his eyes, and he said, Dad, God is just so good to me. He said, you know, last week when I wrote that check, it was hard because I really felt like I needed that money. And then he goes and gives me this. And he points to the envelope. He removed a check that was written from a family friend who had moved away a year earlier and who had just, out of the blue, decided to send Joel a little something to help him with his tuition costs. And he pulled out a check and showed me a check for $150. And then he said, Dad, it's just like you say, you can't outgive God. Now, you know, I don't tell you that story so that you think that if you put 110 in this week, you're going to get it back next week. But I believe, and we'll see in a few minutes, that God loves people who by faith give of their resources. And He can do a whole lot better than you can. Giving begins as an act of faith. And if you, if you wait until you think you can afford it, you'll never do it. You just need to step out and do it. But not only is giving an act of faith, I'd suggest it's also an advance of faith. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 7, he says this, But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Paul was actually writing to the Corinthian believers, urging them, to grow in their capacity to give to the needs of others, just like the Macedonians had done. Uh, And Paul describes them a few verses earlier. He says, who out of their deep poverty gave according to and beyond their ability, begging for the favor of giving. And so Paul is saying to these Corinthians, he says, just as you grow in things like love and faith and utterance, your teaching and speaking gifts, so you need to grow in this gracious act of giving as well. It was um, that verse back in 1982 that really launched us on the journey that we began that year of our marriage. And so we decided that every year on our anniversary, we would ask ourselves two questions. The first question we ask is, has God been faithful to meet all of our needs this past year when we gave him X percent of our income? And you know, every single year, for 26 years, the answer has always been yes. Sometimes overwhelmingly yes. Sometimes just yes, but always it's been yes. And so then we always ask ourselves a second question. Can we trust God to increase our giving in the coming year by X percent? That could be a quarter of a percent or a half a percent or one percent. It really doesn't matter what the percent But I think for us it was important that it be a percent because it's easy to grow in your giving, just continually giving 10% because, you know, income tends to grow as time goes by. But we said, God, can can we trust God to increase by a certain percentage or fraction of a percentage? And rarely over those 26 years have we felt that we had to remain static where we were. And it has been one of the most exciting, liberating journeys of our life. Now you might say, well, has it been stretching? Oh yeah, it's been stretching. Has it been hard? Yeah, it's been hard. It's been stretching and hard, just um, like bodybuilding would be stretching and hard if you've ever done that. But has it weakened us? Has it handicapped us? Has it grounded us? Well, about as much as 
Bodybuilding would weaken and ground and handicap somebody whose muscles keep growing. In other words, no, it hasn't. It honestly has not done any of those things. It has truly given us a liberty in our finances that I just, I can't explain it, but it has. That's what happens when you grow in your giving. Well, perhaps you're saying, yeah, but I, I thought the Old Testament was 10% and the New Testament, we, you know, we are not bound to do that anymore. Well, I like to look at it like this. Uh, when our first child was about three years old, we bought him his first bicycle. It was a nice little bicycle complete with a little plastic carrier on the front and a horn and two training wheels. Those training wheels, as you know, were designed to help the child learn how to ride his bike without falling over. And as he began to practice, we'd raise those training wheels a notch or so at a time so that he kind of got the, the feel of what it was like to balance. But the day finally came when he began to see those training wheels as restrictive, as not allowing him to be free. And so, as you can imagine, it was a triumphant day, the day those training wheels completely came off his bike. And for the first time, he rode down the driveway totally free of the influence of those wheels. But what did it mean to be free? Well, obviously, he was now free to fall. But that really wasn't the uh, idea that we were looking for. Rather, the idea of being free meant that he was free from the restrictions that those wheels had put on him up to that point. Now he was free to, to, to ride and to turn and to lean into his corners without the restriction of those wheels on the back. He could ride faster. He could maneuver more freely. He could turn without obstruction because he didn't have those wheels that were holding him in that rigid upright position. I like to look at giving a lot like that. I believe the Old Testament teaching on the tithe was kind of like training wheels. In fact, Paul says that the Old Testament law was our tutor or our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. They were like things to, to, to guide a child until they reach maturity. And when those things are then removed, it's not so that I can go back to being an infant, but so that I can soar and be free like I never was before. I believe that's biblical. I believe it is biblical to be growing in our giving. Giving is an act of faith. There's no way around it. It takes an act of faith. But it's not just an act of faith where you stop and you stay stagnant for the rest of your life. But it should be an advance in faith. But even more than an act and an advance, I would suggest that giving is an adventure of faith. The journey in spiritual discipline of giving has been one of, if not the most amazing journeys of our married life. Now, I would never tell you what we give. I believe that's a very private, intimate part of a believer's relationship with God. But I would simply say this as sincerely and humbly as I can, that we have worked out in the, in the discipline of giving for 26 years, and our giving muscles are a little bigger than they were when we began. But far more amazing than what God has enabled us to give is what he has given in return. It, it is incredible what God does when we step out in faith and, and obey him in the area of our giving. I could tell you story after story of God's faithfulness to us and abundance to us. Some, some that I would be embarrassed to tell you because... Uh, because it's just been so overwhelmingly incredible. 
There's a verse in Luke 6:38 that says, Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. For you, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. I can tell you it has been true in our lives. I think the verses that best describe what we have experienced in terms of this adventure are the verses in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 that say this, Now this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You know, the process of sowing and reaping is nothing short of miraculous. You sow a handful, you reap a bushelful. You sow a bushelful, you reap a truckful. You sow a truckful, you reap a barnful. You sow a barnful, you reap a trainful. That's miraculous. You quit sowing, you just start eating it all. Pretty soon you quit reaping. That's what God says. The principle of giving and receiving is every bit as miraculous. I can't explain it. I can't explain how you could do as well or better on 90% than 100% or on 80 or 70% than 100%. I can't explain how you could feel freer in your finances by giving more of it away, but I am telling you it is true. And it's not like the preachers of prosperity theology would have you believe that God wants to make you rich. God wants to pour out his abundance so that you can keep sowing. He says, he, he, he says God's able to make all grace abound to you so that you may have an abundance for every good deed. He goes on to say, he says, he multiplies your seed, not for keeping, but for sowing. I honestly feel like a man who has hit on the greatest investment strategy in the world and I am, I am amazed that it seems so few people seem to get it. All the surveys tell us that the average giving of, of evangelical Christians in North America is between 3 and 4%. I just can't understand that. Do you want to see God pour out His abundance in your life? Then be a growing giver. By faith, ask God to take you to the next level in your giving. I'm not telling you what you should give. I don't think that's any of my business to tell you what you should give. In fact, Paul says, let each one give just as he's purposed in his own heart. I'm simply telling you, you need to ask God to, to help you to grow, to work out those giving muscles, to take off those little training wheels, and to help you to soar to new levels in the wonderful discipline of spiritual giving. Why? Well, one reason is because he said God loves a cheerful giver. You may have heard before that that word translated cheerful in the Greek is hilaros, from which we get our English word hilarious. Kind of a funny word for God to use to describe our giving. But when you think about hilarious in the world of humor, hilarious is not some, simply something that makes you smile. It's not even something that just makes you laugh. It is something that makes you laugh so hard you cry. It's not forced, it's not fabricated, it's not measured and done in little controlled installments. Rather, it is something that is so funny that it bursts forth from you in fits of unrestrained laughter that hurts your stomach and causes your eyes to overflow with tears. Imagine giving like that. Not forced, 
not fabricated, not under compulsion, but rather pure, unrestrained, joy-driven, heartfelt giving. That's the kind of giving that God longs to see bursting forth from us, his people. You can't put a percentage value on it because it's got nothing to do with percentages anymore. It's got to do with passion. It's got to do with, a, with, with just a, a heartfelt longing to go far beyond. Biblical giving, outrageous. Well, I think that word really only describes it for those who refuse to embrace it. But for those who do embrace it, I think the word hilarious is a lot better word to describe it. Unrestrained, overflowing, heart-bursting, ever-growing generosity. That's what God longs for from us. It starts as an act of faith. It grows as an advance in faith. It becomes an incredible adventure of faith. And this morning, let me just urge you to ask God by faith to help you to spread your wings and catch an updraft of the Spirit of God to lift you a little higher in the glorious spiritual discipline of giving. Let's pray. Father, we want to affirm this morning that we believe you. We don't want to believe what the world has to tell us, that we should be accumulating more and more stuff and that that will make us happy. We don't want to believe what the world would say, that it is impossible to uh, get ahead uh, and to be happy and to be fulfilled and to be free if we give, up, give our stuff away. But Father, we believe what you say. You have said that you love people who give like this. You have said, Father, that, um, that giving is more wonderful than receiving. And you said so much more. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to believe you this morning and to not go away from here without purposing in our heart to act on what you've spoken to us today. We thank you for your glorious word in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as I was talking to Rupin last night, I said, how, how much exactly do you need? And he said, 42 people at $25 each. Well, if you're any good at math, you know that's $1,050, which is nothing. $1,050. A lot of us in this room could underwrite that whole cost ourselves this morning. I know, I know we could. Uh, but we're not asking you to do that. Um, but um, you may also know that Rupin is a CEF missionary, and I personally know that Rupin is still lacking in financial support. So if you get out there today and he's filled all those $25 slots, let me give you another idea. <laughs> Why didn't you say Rupin? I'd love to support you and your, your wife as CEF missionaries and start supporting them today. I'm serious. I think that would be a great investment. So don't be disappointed if you get to the table and all the spots are taken. I know there's something else you could do. You know, the foundation of Christian giving, as we've talked this morning, is the gift of Jesus Christ himself who gave his life for us. In that same passage we were talking about this morning from uh, Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says just a few verses later, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. God, if he has uh, revealed himself to you and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, has made you eternally rich. He's also made you temporarily rich, too, in a lot of other ways.
And I believe God has made you rich so that you can make others rich. And so my word to you this morning as we part is really a blessing and a challenge. For those of you who have never received the riches of Jesus Christ, the riches of God through faith in Jesus Christ, who have never received the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ, that's the beginning point of giving. You need to receive something before you start on this wonderful journey of giving. And it's as simple as saying, Lord Jesus, I know that you died on the cross for my sins and you came back from the dead three days later and by faith I want to receive what you've done for me. Would you be my savior? Would you forgive my sins? Would you give me that free gift today? If you've never done that, don't leave this morning without doing that. It it takes just a few seconds. Talk with your friend. Talk with a pastor. But most of all, talk with Jesus himself. It's as simple as telling him you'd like that free gift. Most of us have done that. So my challenge to you today, you don't need another blessing. You need to go and be a blessing. So would you go and be a blessing to Rupin this morning? And not just to Rupin, but to this church and to the peoples of the world that you might make many rich through the riches of Christ to you. Amen.